Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all-time favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Here at IBC, we take a careful look at context, at language, geography, history, and extra-biblical text, pretty much anything that can help us discover more about the Bible. And not that long ago, three of us on the IBC faculty decided to have a conversation about the role of archaeology in studying the Bible. Does archaeology contribute to our understanding? What if it unearths more complex questions? What if it contradicts the way we currently understand the Bible? In last week's episode, we raised some of the initial guiding principles related to what archaeology is and what it can do. And for sure, this is a huge, massive topic. So we thought we would frame it in a conversation around Tel es Sultan. This is the Old Testament site of Jericho. And we chose this site because it pretty much represents opportunities for us to re-examine what the Bible is doing in the Joshua narrative. Around the table today is Dr. Yeshaya Gruber, Dr. Nicholas Shazer, and myself. Dr. Gruber is going to start us off with a comment about the conquest narratives, and then we will rewind to get to how do we date the Exodus, and then we will look at the archaeology part. And if you hang in there, we will even talk about how the gospel writers use the site of Jericho to tell a story of restoration. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Let me just read this quotation from Frank Moore Cross. He was a very, very famous uh, biblical scholar in a variety of fields. Um, And this is about the question of, was the conquest of Canaan historical? Because that has been challenged by many people, uh, largely on the basis of archaeology, in fact. And so you can see two, two different points of view, even in this quotation. So he said, uh, and I think the interview was a few years earlier than this, like 1991, something like that. He said, I am bemused by the fact that given the widespread evidence of destruction in Canaan at the end of the late Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age, some scholars are inclined to attribute the violence to various people, despite the lack of written records, to almost anyone except Israel, for whom we have elaborate written records of warfare. The notion of conquest largely discredited these days, and properly so, in the stereotyped Deuteronomistic version, is not without testimony, archaeological and literary. Israel's pre-monarchical hymns, Songs of the Wars of Yahweh, testify to early wars and conquests. Now, that's actually a little bit of a complicated quotation I was realizing as I was reading it. There's a lot to maybe explain there. Um, I note a few things just to help understand what he's saying. First of all, there are kind of three points of view, I guess, that he's mentioning. One is the sort of, I guess we could call it literalistic interpretation of Deuteronomy, Joshua, which says that the 
which seems to indicate that the Israelites crossed over the Jordan, went into Canaan and destroyed a whole bunch of towns, uh, which raises other questions of its own. And what Cross is saying, uh, he says, you know, generally speaking, end of late Bronze Age, beginning of Iron Age, um, there's a lot of destruction. So why, why do we see this destruction? Why is there this idea that, well, it couldn't have been Israel? He says, I think it could have been just, it's more complicated than just one view or the other view. There, he's, he's going for a kind of middle perspective. Do either of you, uh, Dr. Parker, Dr. Shazer, want to comment on this um, before we go on to the question of, you know, dating and how we can even think about whether the archaeological record contradicts the Joshua story or doesn't contradict it? Do you have any thoughts uh, before we jump forward? Too many, it looks like. I, yeah, Too I think that's <laughs> the problem is I have I have so many thoughts related to it. But um, I think one of the ones that I would throw out there, especially because we're getting ready to talk about the complicated nature of both the timeline and the archaeology at Jericho, and that being connected to the conquest. So there's, there's all kinds of things. And again, I'm just going to come back to archaeology has a tendency to point a finger at our assumptions and invites us to relook at some of those assumptions. And in this case, the whole, the whole story of the conquest and the archaeology related all over the country to the conquest is a more complex story uh, than we typically tell of the Israelite conquest of the land. So there's a lot of questions as to how how large um, was the Israelite population at this time, the ones who went through the wilderness, how many people were there, how many people who came into the land. But what we do see, and this is one of the things archaeology has helped us refine in more recent years, what we do see is, um, like, we can't talk of the Canaanites as a, a, a cohesive group of people. The Canaanites were a bunch of different people. And I mean, I don't want to say race because that will throw us down the wrong path, but lots of different collaborative groups of people. And then we have this singular umbrella they fit under, which is Canaanites. And what we do see is within the conquest history and narrative, we see lots of those people groups join the Israelite community. And so there's a lot of people who were already living in the land who once Israel comes in, they join with the Israelites. And I think when we first started uncovering a lot of that archaeology, it was really confusing to people. And people just blatantly said, oh, there was no conquest. You can't prove the Exodus. We don't have, you know, we don't have evidence that the Israelites were in the wilderness. And then they just wrote off that whole part of history where I think we are invited into just understanding it as much more complex than we've allowed it to be in the past. Yeah, that's a very good point. And um, as I mentioned, Cross takes a complex view. He thinks there was some conquest. He thinks there was also a lot of assimilation people. So not everyone was destroyed. Uh, so a lot of complicated issues to, to consider there, but it makes a difference also when you think the Exodus was, um, if there was an exodus, because that's another another point that has been challenged by some people, but um, there's a big difference between different timelines. 
I am just going to jump in here with a relatively short explanation of the two primary ideas about how to date the Exodus. And it is very tricky because Egyptian records give us no indication to help. The original thinking comes from 1 Kings 6.1, which mentions that 480 years after the Israelites come out of Egypt, Solomon built the temple. So it seems quite straightforward, unless you've ever heard Dr. Nicholas Shazer talk about stylized numbers, of which 480 is a prime example of that. But if we're just reading 480 as 480 years, and the temple was built in 966, then the Exodus would be around 1444. This makes Thutmose III the pharaoh during the days of Moses. But Exodus 1.11 says that the Hebrews built Pithom and Ramesses, the store cities for pharaoh, well, Thutmose III, although he did have a few building projects in the Nile Delta region, he was certainly not known as a great builder. In contrast, Seti I had some building projects completed by Ramses II. And during this time period, we also have papyri that mentions people making certain quota of bricks daily, although not having enough straw to do so. If we go with Seti I and Ramses II, this timing would make the alternative or the late Exodus date around 1270. Now, when it comes to our conversation in this episode about Jericho, this means when we start peeling back layers of archaeology, you want to see a destruction layer around 1400 for the early date of the Exodus, or 1230-ish for the late date of the Exodus. And so now that you have the general framework available, let's get back to our conversation. Who dug at Jericho and what did those archaeologists conclude? The first time we get written documents of people talking about this particular tell is Jericho was Captain Charles Warren in 1868. Um, he's famous for lots of archaeology up in the city of David in Jerusalem. And then we get John Garstang. So he's digging, right? It's like um, we have the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the beginning of the British Mandate. And this changes how people are allowed to do archaeology in the land of the Bible. And John Garstang was a part of that wave of archaeologists. So he dug for six years. He was not known for being meticulous or taking very good notes. In all fairness to him, the standards hadn't really gotten to where they are right now by his time period, but he was a little bit sloppy um, and he dug a small portion of the northern part of the tell and he found a stone wall and he found a portion of a wall that had collapsed and it seemed to date that 1410 time period and that's when we get the Garstang found Joshua's Jericho, we know for sure, period. Everyone was super excited about that. And then we get Kathleen Kenyon who comes. Um, Kathleen Kenyon is an enormously brilliant um, contributor to archaeology. She and some of her digging partners are the ones responsible for changing the methodology of archaeology to make it more precise that we have now. 
uh, but she was a brilliant archaeologist. At Jericho, she dug a trench. So it's like taking a massive slice out of the layer cake. The purpose is then you have all of the time periods exposed down the face of the trench. And she found lots of walls, bases of walls. And Jericho at different time periods also had brick walls on top. So the stone walls never fell, but the brick walls, the brick on top did fall. And she has careful drawings about that. All of the pottery that she had dated to a different time in the Middle Bronze Age uh, or Late Bronze Age, she very adamantly said there is no evidence of the Jericho that Joshua should have taken. So we were missing that layer. We don't have it in the archaeological layer. Basically, she concluded that the type of pottery that she wanted to find there for there to be a thriving city in 1410 wasn't there. And so therefore, the walls Garsting found were probably an earlier Jericho, suggesting then that there was a huge vibrant city, but it was likely destroyed by the Egyptians as they stretched their influence over important areas of Canaan. And that city was not rebuilt and did not exist until after the time period of Joshua. And then after Kathleen Kenyon, we have Bryant Wood. Now, he's an American. He was trained as an archaeologist. He never dug at Jericho, but he was interested. Um, he holds a very conservative interpretation of the Bible. And for him, he was adamant that there needs to be a Jericho that dates to Joshua. And so he went through all of Kathleen Kenyon's drawings of all of the pottery that she found. He redated or he kind of re-examined the pottery and he found some pottery that he felt could be matched to the part of the wall that she found that had the brick that had fallen down. And Bryant Wood has been the modern scholar to say, we do have a city of Jericho that Joshua destroyed. Now, and more recently, there's an Italian team that has partnered with the Palestinians in Jericho, and they've been digging, they just concluded their dig. And so they've kind of, they dug a different part of the tell. They've exposed a lot more of the various walls that have existed um, and their findings, they have all kinds of free documents you can download. So you, if you just Google the Italian-Palestinian expedition to Jericho, you will find all kinds of documents that are fantastic. Um, they, there's kind of a, a newer way of kind of trying to match some of these timelines. And now that most scholars are kind of leaning towards the late date exodus, then what existed at Jericho during that late date, the 1210-ish date. And what we see is it's not a huge city at that time. It's actually more of an outpost city. So it's, it's not this big, huge, developed, thriving city, but something that seems to be functioning more like maybe an Egyptian outpost, um, kind of holding and watching the roads. And so it was a, a much smaller area. So those are, it's 
confusing because we've been like, we found Jericho. No, we didn't find Jericho. We found Jericho. No, we didn't find Jericho. Um, and now we're left with something that is demanding us to be a lot more careful about the dating of all kinds of things. So I, I'll say one more thing. Because also as we start looking at beyond Jericho and as we start um, thinking of Joshua and Judges, and Joshua has this great valiant, we go into the land, we take Jericho, and then there's a southern campaign and a northern campaign, and they, it reads like, and they've taken the land in one generation. And then you start the book of Judges, and you realize there were a bunch of places, there's a bunch of territory where the Canaanite cities were too strong, and the Israelites never took it. So in all of this, um, and I'll just, I'll, I'll conclude by going in, if we're reading these stories really carefully, what we find in the text is there's only three destructions of cities or outposts. Jericho, Ai, and Hatzor are the only ones where the text explicitly says that they raise it to the ground, right? That they're destroying the city. Those three places, not with Jericho, because we're missing that that burn layer, some sort of destructive layer. Uh, but at I and at Hatsor, we have a burn layer that we can date to that time of Joshua if we take the late date Exodus, if, if any of that makes sense. So all to say there's a missing destruction layer at Jericho, but if we widen the scope and if we're willing to live with a little bit of mystery as to what was going on at Jericho, we're still watching the, the, the bigger story play out in the archaeology across the land. Fascinating. And thank you for that careful, cautious explanation, um, because I think that really is the lesson here of all of the changing archaeological interpretations and biblical interpretations. We should be a little cautious and humble about our assertions. Nick, you have found some really interesting textual connections. We talked about recapitulation a lot, and what essentially what that means is the ancient Israelites had a view of history, and actually we can see it playing out in the biblical narrative itself, of, of things moving forward in history, but also moving forward cyclically uh, in a circle. Um, so it's like kind of like spiral direction, you know, like this going forward. Um, uh, and nowhere is this more interesting um, than the fact that Israel as a people, when they get into the, into the land of promise, into the land of Canaan, later to be called Israel, that they come through Jericho first. Well, Jericho is also where they get kicked out of the land, uh, very famously, according to the prophet Jeremiah. And then there are parallels to the Jeremiah story elsewhere in historical books. But I'll just do this quickly. Joshua 6.24 so they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of, the bron of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Um, what they've got is a treasury, a grouping of like valuable pieces that they have put together. And ultimately, that treasury goes into what will become the temple in Israel. Now, in Jeremiah's day, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, here called the Chaldeans, it's just another name for the Babylonians, they sweep in to the plains of Jericho and they oust 
the, the current king, King Zedekiah. Um, and here's what the text says. Now notice the similarities here. The army of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. And they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon does what? Burns the house of the Lord. The Israelites had burned the city of Jericho coming in. The, the king of Babylon burns the house of the Lord coming out. And the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. So it's the exact same scenario of burning the city of Jerusalem. But in this case, Jerusalem has become Jericho, which is really a big theological thing. Every great house he burned down and the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold. What was silver, as silver. So what we've got here are the Babylonians taking the bronze and the gold and the silver and the valuables out of the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem, burning the city and completely unraveling what the Israelites had done to get into the land in the days of Joshua. So this truly is positive versus negative. It's, it's coming full circle now. And, and, the, and Jeremiah really wants you to understand that uh, similarity and the, the main difference. So they come in Jericho, they go out of Jericho. Another interesting thing to note from a New Testament perspective is Jeremiah 52, 11, which says this, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, put out the eyes of Zedekiah. So he cuts his eyes out and he binds him in chains and the king of Babylon, the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. So the putting out of the eyes of Zedekiah occurs in the plains of Jericho. Having that information is very interesting because in Mark, and there's a version of this in Matthew, that Jesus heals the eyes of a blind person in Jericho. Here's what Mark 10 says. And they came to Jericho. And as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, by the way, Bar in Aramaic just means son of. So Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. Um, the, this, this blind person was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Um, and, he, and he said to him, Rabbi, let me re recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has saved you. Your trust, your pistis has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So in this singular entrance into Jericho, according to Mark's gospel, what does Jesus do? Restores the eyes of someone. So what is Mark trying to tell us? In Jesus's miracles and his healing ministry, he is restoring the people of Israel. He's restoring the brokenness that occurred at the exile, and he is reconstituting the people of Israel in his own healing work. As you can see, there are many interesting lenses we can use to study the Bible. And having conversations like this is something very characteristic of Israel Bible Center. If you like these kind of conversations, but are not yet connected to the vast resources of IBC, consider enrolling as a student. From the context of your own home and at your own pace, you can take classes and within a year or shorter, depending on how absorbed you get in the classes, you can earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. 
Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 